It's a privilege to speak today on this invited series. And whilst this series, I'm sure, is something of a celebration for you as a local church about all that God is doing among you, you must also be aware it's a pioneering work. It's not a thing that many churches are engaging with to this kind of level, though many, many churches are diverse around our nation. You're going for new ground. You're seeking to take ground that hasn't been won as yet. And whether you want to be or not at the forefront of this kind of issue, you are. Whether you wanted that or not, that's where you are. Churches have the potential to be at the forefront of issues of diversity and inclusion in the whole of their communities and right across the world. My hope and prayer today is that I can help in some small way to win the ground. Because if you win, we all win. Today we're looking at uh, uh, the, the part of the series, What's on the Menu?, What compromises need to be made in order for those on the outside to come in? What do we need to do to welcome people, to give them a place at the table? What needs to be on our menu for them? We're going to go straight to our passage, which is Acts 15. We're going to read some verses from this passage. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers... Unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had been doing through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, brothers, You know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. When they finished, James spoke up, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. This is a significant and historic moment in the life of the early church. 
Stephen has been stoned and the church is persecuted. The disciples are scattered as a result. The Ethiopian eunuch is reached by Philip. Paul is converted. Peter meets Cornelius. And the Antioch church is born. The disciples travel to Antioch and for the first time they spoke intentionally and deliberately to Gentiles about the gospel and a revival takes place in that pagan city. The implications of which they had not considered. Antioch becomes the centre of the fledgling church. Why do I say that? It's here that the disciples are first called Christians. I.e. their faith is seen as distinctive enough that they as a group are large enough to be named. Barnabas and other prophets come from Jerusalem to Antioch. Paul is brought here by Barnabas and a new church is born. Even Peter comes to Antioch at some point. They embrace this newfound faith in diversity, in leadership, in prayer, in worship and in mission. But there's a problem. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? For some who had come from Jerusalem, it meant circumcision. It meant following the law of Moses. That made sense to them because every Christian had been a Jew up to that point. It was serious for them, so serious that they took a trip to Jerusalem and to discuss it with the elders. They were welcomed back. They talked about what God had done. Peter shares his experience about Cornelius. And then James makes this judgment. This was massive for the church. This was massive probably for James as the leader of the church because this was in some ways a compromise that the Jews were willing to make. James makes it clear that the gospel is an invitation to join in the kingdom of God. It wasn't an obligation. It was something that they could do. He makes no mention of circumcision. Most of the rules that Jewish Christians were living by, he doesn't talk about them. He gives them a few things to help them on their way. For the Gentiles, it must have been massive because what he was saying would curb some of their own liberty that they were used to, would curb their sexual practice, their food laws. It would have been huge for them, but compromise was what was required for the gospel to go forward and for people to be invited to the table. So what about for us today? What are, what are the barriers that we face? What are the bridges that we can build to ensure people can come and be part of what God is doing? The world, more than ever before, needs someone to win on this issue. It needs a church or churches or groups of churches to make it through on this issue. The danger is that without even realising it, we can just uh, move on these issues of diversity and then actually pull back and go into a cycle where we discuss and debate and we go back. But we need to take new ground. What are the questions that come up? There are certain questions that seem to come up wherever we talk about these issues. How do we deal with the past? What about history? It's a real question. What is the common identity that people can have in Christ that enables them to be together? How do we share life together? How do we make a difference? How do we share our resources? How do we share power? How do we share our gifts? So often, it's on these issues that the church makes some progress 
and then it pulls back. We're going to look at three things, three barriers and I suppose three bridges that we need to build. The barriers are history, rejection and differences and the bridges we're going to look to help build them. The first is this, when it comes to history, we need to create a culture of forgiveness. The Bible tells us to forgive one another. Forgiveness must be high on the menu for any people who want to reach out with the gospel. People from every background have past hurts and issues. Whilst ultimately we find freedom in Christ, in God, the Bible tells us to forgive one another. But for some, especially when it comes to building a diverse church, forgiveness is a real issue. Why? For some people, they've suffered deep rejection. Now, I understand that we all suffer rejection at times and in different ways. But for some people, that rejection is not just personal. It's historic. It's systemic. It lives with them. Maybe they're more sensitive to it. I want to show a video now which will illustrate this idea of rejection and also this idea of forgiveness. I just need to warn you about the video, though, that it's, uh, it uses language that we do not use today, that we don't find acceptable today. Um, but So I'm asking you to look past the language uh, because the video itself does make some powerful points. And it's a video... Uh, it's, it's about a girl called Ruby Bridges some of you may have heard of her and it's a doctor who's talking about his interactions with her so um, it would be great if we can play the video New Orleans was aflame with racial hate and street violence They were trying to desegregate two elementary schools, and this little girl was ordered by a federal judge to go into one of them. And she was there all by herself. The whole white population had boycotted the school. No other children with her. And I happened to see this little child going into a school in New Orleans at the age of six to the first grade. I thought to myself, I would like to know that child. I'd like to know what's happening to her. One day, having now spent months getting to know Ruby and being rather puzzled at how normal and stoic and strong she was, going through this kind of living hell, 200 people waiting at 8.30 in the morning to tell her they were going to kill her. 200 people in the afternoon telling her they were going to kill her. 25 federal marshals taking her into that building. What would you expect? You'd expect that a child going through that would pretty soon start developing symptoms and be in trouble. I waited and waited, and there weren't any symptoms, and she kept going and learning and being the ruby that she was, a normal six-year-old black child, very poor background. Parents didn't even know how to read and write. Humble people. One day, her school teacher said to me, she'd been looking out of the window, and she saw Ruby yet again coming to school. This time, she watched carefully, and she noticed that as Ruby was walking past this mob of heckling men and women, she stopped and 
the teacher saw her lips moving. I said, Ruby, your teacher told me today that uh, she saw you talking to those people on the street. She said to me, Doctor, I told her that I wasn't talking to the people. I said, well, who were you talking to, Ruby? She said, I told her I was talking to God. Could you tell us, uh, tell our audience uh, why you took them out? Because I didn't want them to go to school with the niggas. Why were you praying to God? She said, I was praying for the people in the street. I said, why were you doing that, Ruby? And she said, uh, well, because I wanted to pray for them. I said, you did want to pray for them? Yes, she said. I said, Ruby, why would you want to pray for those people? And then she looked at me and her eyes widened and she said, well, don't you think they need praying for? That stopped me cold. Where did she get that idea, Ruby? She said, well, my mommy and daddy have told me that and the minister told me that in church. She said, I pray for them every morning and I pray for them every afternoon when I go home. I say for the mothers to keep their kids out of school. We're, no, we're white people. We don't want them to go to school with niggas. I have five, and they're not going to school with no niggas. And I said, Ruby, those people are so mean to you, and they're so nasty to you. You must have some other feelings toward them besides wanting to pray for them. She said, I just keep praying for them, and I just hope that God will be good to them. I said, what do you say in the prayer, Ruby? I always say the same thing. What's that, Ruby? Well, I always say, please, dear God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, I'd heard that someplace before. And I heard it in that kitchen, in that extremely impoverished house, and it silenced me. I had no more questions to ask. Here is a child whom we learned in the 60s to, uh, to say that she came from a culturally disadvantaged and a culturally deprived home. They were illiterate, her parents, and yet they had taught her biblical truths in a way that she was to live them out. I'd like to see some of us who have fancy educations bring up our children similarly. Do we? I'm not so sure we do. They hadn't read any of these books in childhood. They didn't know anything about this or that stage of moral or psychosexual development. But boy, they knew how to bring up a child in such a way that she could call upon the statements that Jesus called upon and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos. They had memorized in their minds, in church, whole passages from the Old and New Testament and they try to live it out. And it would be nice if some of, some of us would try to live things out. Not only get an A in biblical literature, or an A in moral, moral analysis, or an A in uh, Southern history, but uh, to get the kind of A Ruby got. I don't know about you, but I found that video deeply moving. But do you know what? I also found it faith-building. Whilst Ruby Bridges is rejected as a six-year-old child, and, and we can't hide behind the fact that she is simply rejected for being black, her parents 
had also been rejected for being black and her grandparents had been rejected for being black and so on, it would be no surprise that maybe her kids would feel a little bit sensitive about the issue of rejection. And whilst we, she was rejected for that, we see how well her parents served her and we also see the power of the gospel when it comes to forgiveness. That at six, year old, six years old, you're taught how to forgive. Forgive them, Father. Forgive them, Father. I imagine that even though in a very childlike way she adopts that kind of stance, that God in his grace and mercy protects her from all the damage that you imagine could have been caused to her because of the rejection, because of what happened. That she doesn't, and you can read about her, she doesn't grow up with the resentment that you might imagine. She doesn't grow up with the bitterness that you might think. She learns to forgive. The power of forgiveness. The power of the forgiveness that we find in Jesus. I imagine, although I don't want to totally uh, say, I imagine that none of us may have suffered as Ruby did. That none of us may have had rejection in the way that she did. Can we forgive like she forgave? Can we put things aside, the hurts and the pains? We live in a world that rightly will abhor this video, that will be embarrassed in in some way. Some of us will be embarrassed by it. Others of us will be angered by it. Ruby grows up, and do you know what she does? She gives her life to working towards integration. To this day, She gives her life to helping people build bridges. The issue here, though, about rejection is rejection doesn't always look as extreme as that. Rejection doesn't always look like that. Rejection is really the opposite of sharing. The Bible tells us share with one another. If you're a parent here, no doubt you've done your best to teach your child or children to share. I don't know whether you've ever thought about it. When your child does not share, and you tell them off and you tell them what they should do and all that kind of stuff, I don't know whether you've ever thought about what it, what, what's the feeling for the child who is not shared with. I have a toy, I have a game, I have a space. I don't, I don't share it with you. In fact, I choose not to share it with you. What's the feeling for that child? Do you know what? The feeling is rejection. That's what you feel when people don't share with you, when people don't give to you. That's what Ruby was going through. It was rejection. Now, her rejection, as we see from the video, is really extreme. It's really extreme. I don't, I've never experienced rejection like that. But I've experienced rejection. Sometimes we reject simply by not sharing our lives and our worlds and our resources or our experiences with others. They feel rejection. For Ruby, when she attended that school, 
500 kids were withdrawn on that day. She went to school alone. She spent the whole of the first term as the only child in the school. And then for the next two terms of that school year, other children were brought back to the school, but they never shared with her. She was taught alone. So although they shared the space, they didn't really share. Sometimes it's easier to give up your rights rather than to share them. But sharing is a mark of the gospel. We become co-heirs with Christ. We become partakers with him. We become members of the same household. We become brothers and sisters. It's not only about food, but about life, about our identity. James, when he made his judgment in the Council of Jerusalem, was not setting up a new church or a new or separate group of people who would believe in Jesus. He was opening the door and inviting people to the same table that he himself sat at. For him to do that required sharing his identity, sharing his power, and sharing, and it was a massive compromise for him. On what does a disciple of Jesus look like? And how do they act? Will we do the same? The third thing, the third barrier that we need to look at, and the third, I suppose, bridge we need to build, is differences. Differences, at one level, we think it's a wonderful thing because we celebrate our differences. But more than celebrating our differences, we need to create a common identity. We need to remember that we're a new creation, that we're a new community, that we're one new humanity. The other interesting thing you find about Ruby's story is to do with her parents. They were poor, uneducated African-Americans who lived at a time of deep racial segregation and divides. Yet... They have more in common with you than your unbelieving neighbour who might look like you, who might sound like you. They have more in common with you. Most of us wouldn't think that. We'd think, oh no, that's not true. But they do. Why? Because the most fundamental, deepest part of their life is to do with their faith. They're believers. You're a believer. They are in Christ. They were in Christ just as you are in Christ. They taught Ruby about forgiveness just as you would teach your kids about forgiveness. They taught her to pray. They taught her to encourage and to believe and to have faith in God just as you teach your children to pray, to encourage and believe and have faith. Okay, they're poor. They're black. They're American. But if our faith is to believe and lived. It should trump our culture. It should come above our culture. We should be able to relate. It's great to celebrate differences, but to break new ground, you need to celebrate more of what you have in common. You need to come to that place. Culture is important, but hear me, it's not sacred. Just like James and the church in Jerusalem, we need to be willing to give up sometimes deeply held 
cultural values and beliefs that contradict or get in the way of the gospel. Your spiritual growth and walk with God and the community you're a part of should be the most important part of your life. And you can learn from other believers because of that. Faith is one of the few places where the uneducated can teach the educated. Do you have friends like Ruby's family? Have you put yourself in a place where what you have in common in Christ outweighs all the differences? Where the cross and culture meet, culture must die. So if we're able to break down those barriers and to build those bridges, if we're able to put on the menu a culture of forgiveness, a culture of sharing and a a common identity, what would that look like for us today? Three things, very quickly, to run through. The first is, it comes from the passage in Ephesians 2, which you will know well, peace in relationships. Christ's work on the cross brings about a surprising result. It's not what you expect, but it brings peace. It brings peace between people who once were hostile to one another. Peace comes. A move away from the natural way of responding. Misunderstanding, hostility, defensiveness, suspicion, fear. All of that exists often between people who are different. But when you come to the cross, it brings peace. Secondly, when you come to the cross, you become a witness to the world. It's great when we go out and we're doing evangelism and you're speaking to people about Jesus, but one of the big witnesses that you will be is the unity of the people together. And that diversity and unity is a massive witness to the world. If you remember in the story of Acts 6 with the widows and the orphans and the, and the Hebrew Jews and the Greek Jews, once they got that sorted, once they got that right, it says large numbers of people come to faith including many leaders in the community. It's a witness to the world. And thirdly, it brings about a heavenly worship experience. In heaven, we know that worshipping before the throne, worshipping before the Lamb, is a people of every tribe, tongue and nation. They're surrounding the throne. And when you build a church of such diversity you become a small picture of that. Surrounding the throne, people from many different tribes, tongues and nations, worshipping God together. When you begin to see these in your midst, you're winning the battle. So just to close, the gospel of God is an invitation to join him at the table. Not because we're obliged, but because we're invited. And the invitation is open to everyone to be part of his plan and his purpose and his people. For some of us, we need to begin to forgive. We need to deal with the issues of rejection. We need to move on from burying things, from forgetting things. If you're not free, if you've not been liberated, maybe you haven't truly forgiven. Maybe you haven't come to that place. If you're still painful... Maybe you need to deal with those things. For others, we need to learn to share. 
We need to not naturally withdraw or draw to people who are just like us, find ourselves in communities just made up of our people. We need to learn to share ourselves. Yeah? Sharing is gospel. Sharing our lives with others who believe. And for all of us, we need to find in the common identity of what Christ has done a new culture. It's not to say that culture isn't important. As I said, it is important. But it's not sacred and we mustn't idolise it. Celebrate your differences if you must. But celebrate what God has done among you and in you even more than that. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your goodness and your grace. I thank you, Father, that you're able. You're able to bring about the kind of church that we desire so much in our hearts. You're able to bring about the kind of change that we long for in our community. That you're able to bring about the kind of impact in our own lives. And so, Father, I pray today for those that need to forgive for those that need to deal with issues of rejection, for those that need to uh, bring that to you, I ask, O God, that they would come confident that you're able. And Father, I pray for those of us that need to humble ourselves and we need to share, share our lives, share our resources, share all that you have given us. And Father, I pray for such a common identity to come among us that we will be able to relate to people who are very, very different up to us because of Jesus' work on the cross. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.